first reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, and can be found on page 1175 of the Bibles beside you. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second reading is from the Gospel according to John. Chapter 15, and beginning at verse 9, on page 1083 in the Church Bibles. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as a as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few moments ago, we heard these words of Paul, continuing in our series of sermons on prayer. 
Paul writes, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know his love that surpasses knowledge. To know his love that surpasses knowledge. That's quite amusing at first sight, that statement. Love that is beyond our human understanding. But it's a goal that Paul sets for us that we should aim at. Speaking of goals, I have to congratulate Pompey on scoring three goals yesterday. It's the first time this century, I think, probably they've scored three goals in a match, but it's really encouraging. They found the goal, and Bennett scored twice, which I'm even more pleased about. The love of Christ that's beyond human knowledge. We should be aiming for that. A group of four to eight-year-olds were asked, what does love mean? Their answer varied from the amusing to the profound. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts an aftershave and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> love is what makes you smile when you're tired. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for me, for her all the time, even when his hands have got arthritis too. That's love. When you tell someone something about yourself that's bad and you're scared that they won't love you anymore, but then you're surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. There are two kinds of love our love and God's love, but God makes both kinds of love. Some great answers there. Perhaps they understand love better than some of us might do. Paul prays that Christians may have that kind of love that's beyond our knowledge. And in verse 17 of chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul prays that we might be rooted and grounded in the love of God. It means to be established, stabilised in the superior love that comes from God. The world has its own uh, definition of God's of love, but it's often very self-centred. But God's love, Paul tells us, is without equal. And Paul prays that we'll be established by God's definition of what love really is. So he uses two words, rooted and grounded, one agricultural, and the other architectural. The word rooted means to get our roots firmly rooted in the rich soil of God's love. And last month we saw, thought about the parable of the sower, where the recipients of God's word who allow God's word to grow and produce the fruit of the Spirit in their lives are blessed by God. And it's no coincidence, perhaps, that the first fruit of the Holy Spirit described by Paul in Galatians is love. And the other word Paul uses means to be as stable as possible so as not to collapse. And if our love is firmly rooted in our relationship with Jesus, then the storms of life which inevitably come will not make that love fall apart. That relationship that comes, as Paul says, through Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith there is no other way. And John reminded us last week that our relationship with Christ 
isn't an automatic privilege mediated by a sacrament of baptism or conferred by official membership of a church through confirmation. It's through faith, personal faith and commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. It's one thing to be rooted and grounded in sound doctrine or even in the service of church, but being rooted and grounded in God's kind of love leads to an even deeper walk with God. And in the same letter, Paul writes, we're to be imitators of Christ, Ephesians 5, verse 1. We're to be so rooted, grounded in the love of Christ that it affects every part of our life, every relationship, every ministry that we're involved in, every attitude, every action that we perform needs to be rooted and grounded in God's love. If we're honest, it's difficult to live to a set of values and ideals, let alone those that Christ himself sets us. But that's our calling as Christians, that's our goal. In the world of politics at the moment, the Labour Party are in the process of electing a new leader. And in doing so, its members are trying to discover what the values and standards of the party really are, having shifted one way and another over the years. And the debate is raging, and the battle for hearts and minds has been openly declared. And it's an interesting debate. The Prime Minister tells ethnic groups that they must accept British values well, I'm not sure what British values are anymore, I have to be honest. But what are our Christian values that we live by? Well, one of them is to know his love, which surpasses knowledge, and to demonstrate that love in our lives. As we come together on Sunday mornings, it's fairly easy and comfortable within our service to say that we want to live like Jesus, to be imitators of Christ. Yet, we lose it at work on a Monday morning or with a family on the way back from church or even in church. And our values and our standards go out the window at times. And the thought of being holy or being different seems just impossible, unobtainable. Last week I read an article online entitled Seven Things That Non-Believers Think About Christians. Here are three of them. Christians are against more things than therefore, It seems to me that Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. They're so negative that they seem unhappy. I have no real desire to be like them and stay upset all the time. Oh, ouch, that hurts. Some Christians try to act as though they've no problems. Harriet works in my department. She's one of those Christians who seems to have a mask on. I would respect her more if she didn't put on such an act, because I know better. And thirdly, I don't see much difference in the way that Christians live compared with others. That's worrying. I can't really tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't seem much different from other people I know. A challenge for us. But God knows that we are human so did Paul, and that's why he prays in verses 15 and 18 twice that we might be strengthened from on high to be able to live as he would have us do. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit, that you may have power 
together with all God's holy people, to grasp how wide, how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Can we even begin to understand that kind of love and to make it our own and to love like that ourselves? Paul prays that we might, and it's our love for others as it takes control of our lives that will enable us to sense the reality of Christ more powerfully in our lives. If our lives are filled with bitterness and hatred and resentment, they can form a spiritual fog in which the love of Christ is obscured. Who are we to love? Well, I read a challenging article in my college, theological college magazine just recently about loving those with whom we may disagree. And the particular perspective of this writer was to discuss the role of women in leadership. He doesn't believe that that's the right thing, and he's against the government's redefinition of marriage. How do we love those whom we disagree with? We have to pray for them and care for them. How do we love those who we find unlovely? How do we love those within the family who are sometimes difficult? I read um, someone this week who said of someone outside the f of, of the family, I reached out with olive branches, but she kept beating me with them. There was a, an attempt to build love and forgiveness there, but they kept on being rejected. But God wants us to love within the family. How do we love our enemies, perceived or otherwise? I wonder this morning how Australians are feeling about their uh, cricket team, and more especially Trevor Bayliss, the Australian coach of the England cricket team. He's probably the most hated Australian in Australia just at this moment in time. How do Christians love our enemies? We reach out to them. How do we reach out to those who are in hardship? Well, I've often wanted to send the Greek Prime Minister a tie so that he can be in line with everyone else at the meetings of Prime Ministers because he doesn't seem to be able to afford one. But how do we care about the refugees in, in Calais? Do we have a daily mail perception of the, of the uh, refugees there? Or do we think of them as many of them being Christians escaping religious persecution in Eritrea, Orthodox Christians who set up a church in their camp in order to be able to worship God, where the, daily, uh, where the uh, songs of praise will be coming from in due course. It's our love for others that takes control of our lives that will enable us to sense the reality of Christ, the rule of Christ in our human heart is marked by a life of love. And Paul's prayer is that the power and the glory of God will rise up in our midst as we reach out in love for others. Praise that we and the Ephesians would grasp hold of something that would pave the way for God's work among them and amongst us. And what's this amazing something that Paul prays that we get hold of? It is the fact that God loves you. God loves you. That's what he wanted the Ephesians to understand. That's what he wants us to understand. I expect you're a bit disappointed. Something more profound than that. Something new and something different. How many times have you heard the fact that God loves you? How many bumper stickers with smiley faces on them saying 
Jesus loves you, have you seen? Simply hearing those words, God loves you, may touch you about as deeply as someone who says, God bless. In other words, not a lot. It tends to wash over us. Why is it then that Paul talks about knowing God's love? He's so excited, he can hardly contain himself. When we hear about it, we're tempted to yawn and think, oh, well, I've heard that before, rather than getting up and dance, although we did do that quite well just now. Why is it that we don't get excited? Because we don't perhaps fully appreciate it. We know it, but we don't get it. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul isn't praying that God's people would know that God loves them, but that they would know God's love. There's a difference. Do you know God's love? Or do you only know that God loves you? I've certainly encountered people in ministry who've said to me, I hear that God loves me, but I'm not sure that he loves me, as I haven't been good enough. They can't just seem to understand that God loves them for themselves, rather than anything that they might do. I, on a hot Sunday, we might know the molecular structure of water, but that's no use to us. We need a glass of water to revive us and to refresh us. I don't need to know about water, I need water. And if you know that God loves you, but you don't know his love, it's like someone who studies water without drinking it. We might know that God loves us, but have never embraced fully the fact that God loves you and cares for you. And verse 19 tells us that Paul prays that we would understand how broad, long, high, and deep Christ's love is. The word understand here doesn't just mean to gain mental understanding, mental concepts. It means to grasp hold of, to literally get it, to make it become real. And Paul wants us to know God's love. Even though he acknowledges that we aren't fully capable of knowing it in this world, God wants people to know that God's crazy about them. And while intellectual understanding of God's love isn't the same as ex- is important, it's not the same as experiencing God's love. It's a place to start, but taking the time to think about and meditate on God's love is a way to begin to absorb it into our minds. A man found a unique way to propose to his girlfriend. He hired a light aircraft to fly over the town, towing a banner that read, Judy, I love you. Will you marry me? And Judy accepted his proposal by asking, how can you say no to a love like that? And when we look at God's love for us, especially as as it's expressed in Christ and his cross, we ask, How can I say no to a love like that? And that's precisely why Paul prays for us to have an intimate experience of the love of Christ, to grasp the immensity of the love of Christ for us, and to know his love that surpasses knowledge. When we see what Christ has done for us on the cross, how can we say no to that love of Jesus, which goes to such great lengths to gain our attention? 
And one writer suggests that no one can be apathetic in the face of God's love. It's the most powerful force there is. But as the parable of the sower reminded us last month, not all will respond. It's their choice and ultimately their loss. But we should try to give people the opportunity to hear the message of love and not let our lives get in the way as clearly those, that person that was interviewed about what Christians, uh, what they thought about Christians, people's lives had got in the way. God's love is immense. The dimensions of God's love aren't meant to be plucked apart separately. And when Paul prays, what Paul prays is that all Christian believers down through the ages may be so earnest and zealous in their pursuit of our objective to know God's love that we can never get to the point where we say, yes, we've arrived, we've got there. Just picking on three professions for the moment, doctors, teachers, university lecturers, can never rest in their knowledge of their subjects. They will always be striving to improve their knowledge through research and investigation to be able to teach better and to treat people better and to impart knowledge better. No one in those, prof in those professions dare say, I know it all, I've arrived. And neither can we as Christians say, I know it all, I know all of God's love, I've arrived. God's love is distinguished from human love. We love certain people, but not others. We, we love certain types of people, but not others. Just think about the person that you find most difficult in the world today. But then think about God's love for that person. God is crazy about that person that we find most difficult. People sometimes ask me, well, what about bad people? Definition of bad is an interesting one. Because does God love them? Well, yes, he loves you and me. He loves everyone. He hates the things that we do wrong. And our confession, which we had at the beginning, reminded us in so many ways of the things that we do to upset God. But Jesus died because God loves sinners and he longs to set people free from sin and make them like Christ, which is our aim. He longs that people might experience that love. God's love is forever and always, not just on Sundays. There are no business hours for God's love. The love of God doesn't take a holiday. It's constant. It doesn't give up, as ours does sometimes. So when Paul describes love, he means that the quality of God's love surpasses anything that we've known. The way that we get to know something new is to compare it with something we we're already familiar with. So if we're brought up in a home where we've been blessed with the love of others, especially in our families and especially as children, it will be easier for us to say, God's love is like that, only even better. How do people come to faith in Christ? Sometimes it's through intellectual argument, but more often it's because they experience the fact that God loves them and is crazy about them. And that love and that craziness about God's love is demonstrated by Christians reaching out to them. 
and the way they experience it is when God's people who've been rooted and grounded in God's love share that love with them. We live in a world that's starved of true love. They need to be excited by the knowledge of God's love and experience it for themselves. Human beings crave love even more than personal belongings, though that's sometimes hard to believe. People often try to get the best of everything. But in God, we can experience the richest, the highest, the purest and finest love imaginable. And not only that, it's free. And anybody who wants it can have all they want out of his riches. Out of his riches. He's so rich in love that we can take just a little bit of it ourselves and make it real. So there's the challenge for us to understand the depth of God's love. It's a word, the depth there, which is also used in the parable of the sower, where there's no depth to the soil, where the word of God is not received, then there's no fruit. It looks good, but there's nothing to it. God's love is solid and real. It's something that we can bank on in our lives because God is, and I hope we can all say it, crazy about us. And he wants us to know the immensity of his love. To be able to understand it means to have the full capacity, humanly speaking, to grasp with all the saints the reality of God's love. Imagine a church that's like that, full of love. And Paul prays this prayer that we might, as Christians, individually and as a church, fulfill that desire, that prayer. People will often judge a church as being successful by a number of criteria. They will look at the number of people on the electoral roll or the membership list. They will look at the average Sunday attendance figures. They will look at the money in the bank and held in deposit. They will look at the number of staff, both employees and volunteers, and they will look for good facilities, and they will judge that to be a successful church if all those criteria are met in positive ways. Paul prays that the church at Ephesus would not be a church modelled on secular leadership patterns or purely as a social organisation, but that it will be involved in a ministry of love and care. Words of warning are spoken in Revelation to the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds, says the Lord, your hard work and your perseverance. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. We're to be individuals and a church rooted in God's love, a love which puts people first on its agenda, excited by God's love for us and for others too. It's not our human love, it's God's unconditional, agape, self-giving love, not a love that we manufacture. In that reading from John's Gospel, the command that Jesus gives his disciples is to love each other as I have loved you. 
That's the challenge that comes to us this morning as we reflect on these words of Paul in Ephesians. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Paul was able to pray that the Lord Jesus may dwell in our hearts more fully by faith. We ask that you will help us in our human weakness to be able to understand with all the saints how much you love us and to demonstrate that love in our lives. For your name's sake we ask it. Amen.